Dose of Science and Technology on Radio Port Phillip with Piers Cunningham. Welcome back to the program. We have a regular contributor to the show by the name of Dr. Tony Hayes. He's a retired scientist. Great to have you back in the studio, Tony. We're always happy to have you here for your expertise and for the uh, the insights that you can bring to bear on a variety of subjects. Uh, one of them, which was uh, we did recently, was how to image a black hole. Pretty interesting one. You'll find that on our website, beyondinfinity.com.au. But also... Something that was, was sort of touched on, we were waiting for an opportunity to, to look more, in more detail, was Fred Hoyle, who was a very distinguished uh, English astronomer. He was the vice president of the Royal Society for many years, I believe. A controversial figure, someone who was overlooked for a Nobel Prize, possibly because he'd got a few noses out of joint over the years but it's a really interesting story he also had some fascinating theory among which was the idea that comets had seeded the universe with life without further ado tony let's let's get stuck into fred hoyle and his legacy and and his life indeed fred hoyle in fact he was knighted in 1972 he was english astronomer vice president of the royal society the president of the royal astronomical society the, the director of the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge, and he made a huge contribution to the theory of stellar nuclear synthesis. But he was irascible, he was hubristic, he could be extremely rude. He came from Yorkshire, where they don't call a spade a spade, they call it a shovel. <laughs> now, I first encountered him when I went up to Cambridge in the early 60s, and I was made to be very conscious of the fact that I had a north of England, Lancashire accent. I went to a lecture given by Hoyle. It was for a general audience, and it was about nuclear synthesis. It was a very impressive lecture, but the thing that I came away with, the impression I came away with, that this chap had an extremely strong Yorkshire accent, and clearly it hadn't stopped him getting to the top. Hmm. And I thought, well, if, if he can make it to the top, it's not going to... I'm not sure I was going to make it to the top, but it certainly wasn't going to stop me. So I was much inspired by Fred Hoyle. Hmm. Hmm. Now, Fred was lampooned by the skeptics because of what became known as Hoyle's fallacy. He once wrote that the probability of higher life forms uh, emerging by chance alone is comparable to a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. (laughs) And of course that's right, but that's not at all how evolution works. Mm. Evolution is a rather different uh, process. It's not just chance alone. Mm. Hoyle deserved and should have received a Nobel Prize. So let's talk a little bit about Alfred Nobel. Mm. Alfred Nobel was born in 1833 and died in 1896. He was a Swedish chemist, he was an engineer, an inventor. He owned Bofors, the big iron and steel producer, and the manufacturer of cannons and other armaments. He held 355 different patents, the most famous of which was the invention of dynamite. Hmm. In in fact, um, working on dynamite, his brother, his younger brother, was killed in 1864 in an explosion at the factory. Hmm. Alfred Nobel was 
a proficient in six languages, Swedish, French, Russian, English, German and Italian. Now in 1887, Alfred read his own obituary. Now it's pretty unusual, but (laughs) somebody got it all wrong. Somebody had thought he died and he read Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. Now he didn't like this. He didn't want to be remembered for this. He wanted to be remembered for something else. And so what he did, he went along to the Swedish Norwegian Club in Paris, and in 1895, he signed his last will and testament and set the bulk of his estate to establish the Nobel Prizes Ah. to be awarded annually without distinction or nationality. And he put into this kitty... 250 million US dollars. Did he really? That much in the late 1800s? Absolutely. So that was an absolute truckload of money. Staggering amount of money. Mm. Now, Nobel Prizes were to be awarded uh, awarded in literature, physics, chemistry, peace, economics, and physiology and medicine. That was one prize, physiology and medicine. And Nobel laid down strict rules. No more than three people should share a prize. And the prize winners, the laureates, should be living at the time of the award. Now let's look again at these, this list of prizes. Literature, physics, chemistry, peace, economics, physiology and medicine. Mm-hmm. What about mathematics? He'd left out mathematics. Mm-hmm. Now, it's... The story is, and I'm not sure whether this is absolutely true or not, that Alfred's girlfriend ran off with a mathematician <laughs> and he had this thing about mathematics. <laughs> and my first girlfriend ran off with a carpet fitter, so I, we have a lot of flo- bare floorboards in our house. <laughs> now let's travel in time and space and let's go to the Mullard Radio Telescope in Cambridge in the year 1967. Picture a young student, Jocelyn Bell, later to become Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnett, Fellow of the Royal Society, Fellow of the Astronomical Society. I met her in those student days, uh, but didn't really know her. She was just one of the people who came into the lab from time to time. She was working out in the fields beyond Cambridge, building a radio telescope. And she picked up some signals one night And she found a star that seemed to be flashing at one pulse per second. Now, no stars pulse, their intensity changes with time, but nothing had been found at this rapid frequency, Mm. one pulse per second. Mm. Her supervisor, Tony Hewish, uh, said, look, it it must be some local interference, somebody in, in Bedford or Cambridge using some machinery that comes on at night ignore it get on with the main task working on this um, a, a telescope and analyzing that, the signals i think there was a similar thing that happened much more recently in a uh, in a in an australian radio telescope where they discovered that the microwave in the in the staff kitchen was um, interfering with their results and giving them this sort of false 
possible message well, from ET. That's right. I mean, the, the problem is these radio telescopes are extremely sensitive and they're going to pick up signals from all over the place. Mm. Anyway, she persisted and she noticed that this pulse came on every night according to sidereal time. Now, sidereal time is the time it takes for a star to return to the same position in the sky every night. It's not 24 hours. The sun is 24 hours in the same position in the sky. Mm. But stars, it's 23 hours, 56 minutes, because not only is the Earth spinning, but it's moving around the sun. And this pulse came onto her system at exactly the right time corresponding to sidereal time. Hmm. At first they thought that this was intelligent life out in the universe somewhere signaling. Hmm. Clearly these signals were coming from outside. Hmm. It became known as a pulsar. Hmm. But what could it be? Well, her, her supervisor came up with the idea that it must be a rotating neutron star. And in 1974... Her supervisor, Anthony Hewish, shared the Nobel Prize with Martin Ryle, and they got the Nobel Prize for physics. But no mention was made of Jocelyn, Jocelyn Bell, who'd actually made the discovery and had persisted in investigating it in spite of her supervisor. Hmm. The citation for the Nobel Prize, this is Hewish and Ryle, they Pioneering research into radio astrophysics. Ryle for his observations and inventions, in particular the apposite, aperture synthesis technique, and Hewish for his decisive role in the discovery of pulsars. Well, this was a scandal. The proverbial hit the fan. Many scientists expressed shock at Jocelyn Bell being left off the list of Nobel Prize winners, and, and, the, and there could have so well have been three. Hoyle led the charge. He accused Hewish of theft, mm. and Hewish prepared to sue. Mm. Now, the English laws of libel, certainly in those days, was that truth was no defense. <laughs> I, I believe the law has changed somewhat since then, but Hewish threatened to sue Hoyle, and the way the libel laws worked was that if, if Hoyle had it defamed Hewish in any sense then he was guilty of libel. Hmm. Hoyle recanted, and he wrote a groveling letter to the Times, shifting the blame to the Swedish Academy, suggested that the Swedes had not done their research properly, and they'd failed to realize that Jocelyn Bell was a worthy winner, a worthy sharer of this Nobel Prize. Hmm. But Hoyle did many other things. He generated many hypotheses and ideas. Hmm. Some were found to be wrong, some were foolish, some were interesting, and some were truly brilliant. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. But Hoyle did many other things. He generated many ideas and hypotheses. Some were found subsequently to be wrong, some foolish, some interesting, and some truly brilliant. Subsequently found to be wrong were his steady-state theory. This was continuous creation. It was a theory thought up in 1948 in conjunction with Thomas Gould and Herman Bondy. 
it was an alternative to the Big Bang. In fact, the word Big Bang was coined by Hoyle himself, but when he was describing the opposition's theory of the creation of the universe, and it was meant to be a derogatory term. Hmm. Hoyle's steady-state theory involved the continuous creation of matter, and it required for every litre of space were needed about one atom to be created every thousand million years. And that would, re- that would give the required amount of material to fill the universe. <laughs> well, of course, you're never going to detect anything like that. And the whole theory died when the cosmic background radiation was discovered in the late 60s. I've got a direct quote on this. Mm-hmm. According to Hoyle, how in the Big Bang cosmology is the microwave background explained? Despite what supporters of Big Bang cosmology claim, it is not explained. The supposed explanation is nothing but an entry in the Gardner's catalogue of hypothesis that constitutes the theory. Had observation given 27 kelvins instead of 2.7 kelvins for the temperature, then 27 kelvins would have been entered in the catalogue, or 0.27 kelvins, or anything at all. Well, that's right. He, he did try to defend his, uh, his steady-state theory after the... After the, um, the discovery, after of, the the discovery cos- of, of the microwave background radiation. Right. But, I mean, the, the number of people on his side dwindled rapidly. Right. Mm. Um, of his ideas which were foolish was Hoyle's fallacy. We've mentioned that, that before about the Boeing 747 be, be, being uh, created by chance. Mm. Um, also foolish was his questioning of the authenticity of the fossil Archaeopteryx. This was a, a dinosaur fossil which had feathers. Now the early examples were rather indistinct. Um, and he imagined Hoyle's in fact suggested that this was uh, a fake subsequently much better examples were found it did however prompt a paleontologist to remark that astrophysicists should stick to astrophysics and leave paleontology to the paleontologists I think that's just a wonderful sentence (laughs) you're listening to Beyond Infinity science and technology podcasts you'll find show notes and other resources plus our complete searchable backlist of over 600 podcasts at our program website beyondinfinity.com.au